This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid, conversations about how curiosity is the engine of discovery and innovation. I think for me, one of the most extraordinary and exciting things that is going to happen, I think, in the next year is we are going to have a gene therapy for sickle cell anemia. I mean, sickle cell anemia has resisted all efforts to really treat it or prevent it. And it's a terrible and painful disease that disproportionately affects African-Americans in this country. And because of all the knowledge we gained with the Human Genome Project, we are this close to having an approved gene therapy that is going to cure this terrible genetic disease. That's Shirley Tillman, whose career includes 12 years as the first woman president of Princeton University, as well as groundbreaking research in genetics. She also played an important role in shaping what became the Human Genome Project, At the time, that project was a hugely ambitious, and some thought too ambitious, effort to decode all the genes that make us human. But we started our conversation with one of her latest projects. This is so great to be talking with you, and you just came from an interesting meeting that I'd like to hear more about to start off with. Well, since April, I have been co-chairing Governor Phil Murphy's uh, Commission on Restarting and Recovering in New Jersey. You would like him a great deal because he is someone who, who pays a lot of attention to the data, to what scientists are telling him. And the other thing he's doing, which I greatly admire, is he has focused a lot of our work on the extraordinary inequities in our society that this pandemic has revealed to us. So we've been trying to help in all kinds of ways, Um, everything from organizing uh, CEOs in New Jersey to be thinking about how to support small businesses in New Jersey, to uh, ensuring that they are finding ways to employ people in New Jersey during the pandemic, Uh, to worrying a lot about testing and tracing and quarantining, which um, New Jersey is actually doing very well at the moment, but it's a constant struggle. How did you become uh, the co-head of this uh, group? (laughs) I've been asking myself that question for four (laughs) months. (laughs) What am I doing here? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you how you became involved, because my impression is you always are working on the big picture. But, you know, I think the big picture comes when you've had a career in a profession that has treated you extremely well. I feel as though science has given me an extraordinary life, a life I wouldn't trade for anything. And, you know, I do feel an obligation to give back to that community so that the young people who are excited about science right now, and there are a gazillion reasons for them to be excited about it, um, will have the same career experience that I had, which was just, you know, pure joy. Right now, I'm working with a group who are trying to develop a white paper for the next administration 
to think about how biological sciences has changed in the last decade, for example. And it's changed mightily, I can tell you. And how that should be influencing how we develop graduate programs for graduate students in the future. We can't train them the way we were training them when I was a graduate student or even when I was training graduate students. The science is more quantitative. Your, your, your quantitative skills, both computational and mathematical and statistical, have to be much better today than they were when I was a practicing scientist. And so we've been thinking hard about what graduate education should be looking like um, so that we are doing what you just said, that in five, six, seven, eight years when they are through their education, they're really prepared for the science that they are going to confront. When you did your most striking work on the regulation of genes during development, how different was that from how you would have done it today? Well, I think the best way to describe it is that for the vast majority of my career, science, uh, biology, not all science, biology worked as a reductionist science. And by that, I mean, you take a very large problem and you break it down into the smallest component that you can actually gain traction in. So in my case, it was genes. Mm. So I wouldn't study a hundred genes or a thousand genes, I would study one gene. And I would, you know, I would rip it apart. I would take it apart. I would put it back together. I would know everything there was to know about that one specific gene. And then I'd try and integrate it into what other people were understanding about other genes. Today, it is possible to go into the lab and ask a question, a sensible question, about every single gene in the human genome. That was inconceivable in my day. <laughs> Does that mean you can ask questions about how the genes are interacting so that you get a more precise picture of the complex interactions that make something happen? You've been talking to a lot of scientists, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just curious about that because it is so complex. But you've, you've actually said it absolutely perfectly that what these new technologies allow you to do is to ask questions about interactions among genes and not just two or three or four or five genes, but literally, in some cases, all of the genes in the human genome. And uh, you can't do this without huge computational power. Um, artificial intelligence and machine learning are becoming critical tools to being able to do this kind of thing. But it's a completely different way of asking questions about biology than I was asking uh, during the majority of my career. Does, has it already given us tools to ask even more basic questions or to discover more basic things that we didn't even know we had a question for? Yeah, and that's a great way to put it because I think there are two critical things to what you just said. One is the role that tools play in moving science forward. And I think, frankly, biologists didn't appreciate the power of technology until the Human Genome Project came along. And that's mm -hmm. when I think lots of light bulbs went off and we said, oh my God, you know, it, it, to ask a new kind of a question, we need a new kind of tool. And so a lot of the progress that's been made in the last 10 to 15, 20 years has been in developing new tools. That's absolutely critical. And then 
the question is, well, then what do you use those tools to do? And in some cases, it is asking really deep and profound questions that I could have only dreamed about asking uh, in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, so applying those incredibly powerful tools to ask the biggest questions. What was the big basic science research question that got asked and answered or that just happened without being asked, that was discovered, that you think in the last couple of decades? Well, um, I mean, that's a, it, it's hard to single out one, but, but maybe what I will do is single out um, discoveries that happened in my own field, which was developmental genetics. So because of an extraordinary ex set of experiments that were done in the early 1980s by two scientists in Germany, uh, Janni Nusslein-Bolhardt and my colleague at Princeton, Eric Wishaus, they used genetics to identify literally hundreds and hundreds of genes that play some role in patterning an early embryo. And by patterning, I mean telling, you know, which is going to be the front, which is going to be the back, which is going to be, you know. <laughs> That's, that, you know, I never thought you got to really get those things straight you, early on. You know, you kind of do, right? <laughs> so so that, that does sound like an important uh, discovery, to, to be able to ask those questions. But then the amazing thing that happened, and this is what I love about science, is these two scientists knew they couldn't possibly work on all three, four hundred genes that they identified. So they just gave them out to the scientific community. And everybody mm. sort of jumped on a different gene and figured out how this one creates the back as opposed to the front. This one created the head instead of the tail. This one, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it became, you know, a cottage industry, if you want to think about mm. it that way where everybody got to make a contribution. And, and, and so they created an entire field so that today, not they were studying fruit flies, but what we also know, and it's why they won the Nobel Prize for their work, is that we know that the genes they identified in those little tiny fruit flies that sit in your bananas in the morning um, are the genes that determine the patterning of human embryos as well. That's so beautiful, and it, it answers the jokey, the jokey response to research on fruit flies right. that you hear from the government sometimes right. when they're not up on this. You know, why do we want healthier fruit flies? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is remarkable how human life shares so much with every other organism. And, of course, that's because we all evolve from the yes. same source. So, we, you know, nature didn't have to reinvent everything every time a new species arose. It used, you know, the parts that already worked pretty well, and, and that's been fantastic. And you were talking about working on one gene at a time. And then, at a certain point, you, you became a proponent of the whole genome, the Human Genome Project. Am I right? Were you one of the early people speaking out on it? You are right. You were right. I was. You know what surprised me when I first heard that it was being done? 
I was surprised that anybody took it lightly. I was sitting next to a science historian once at lunch, and I said, well, how about this human genome project? I bet everybody's excited about that. She said, no, not so much. (laughs) It it was, you know, it took some time for the community um, to really embrace the power that the human genome project was going to provide. Um, you know, I remember at one point I, I gave a talk about this at Cold Spring Harbor, and, and one of my slides said, a genome enthusiast is a genome skeptic who just got a hit on a database for their gene. right right it gets when it gets personal when it gets personal and you know now it's all about me i'm in favor of this project right (laughs) you you know i saw i saw an interview that you where you were talking about what really amounts to in essence is the politics of science and i think you said you were afraid that it would suffer the fate of the collider in Texas, <laughs> that after after five billion, I think five billion was spent, they still hadn't anything to show for it because it wouldn't show any results until they finished the whole thing and then turned on the switch and Congress lost patience. So, how, how did you work around that problem? So we we developed um, victory parties along the way. And the way <laughs> <laughs> I love that victory party. Yeah. So um, we and and this was the committee that was set up by the government to sort of design the project uh, to first assess whether it was worthwhile and then to design it. And so one of the smartest things we did, and there were two of us who fought like crazy on the committee for this, is to start with simple organisms. So we'll start with a bacterium, E. coli, has a little tiny genome. If we can sequence it and declare that we've sequenced the genome of an entire organism, we have a party. And then we worked our way up to yeast, which is a slightly more complex but single-celled organism. We got its genome sequenced. We had a party. We then did uh, the the um, worm C. elegans, this little tiny soil worm, mm. which is my my favorite worm. I love C. elegans too. <laughs> <laughs> so you worked your way up to now that that's still simple, but m- yep. more complicated than what you started with. And from there, we went to Drosophila, and from Drosophila, we basically then had good enough technology and enough knowledge about how to do this, how to organize it, that we could then sort of jump in and sequence the human. And, and you know, at the end of the day, we sequenced the human in, in, I think it was about two and a half years. It sounds like you were developing tools and, yeah. and techniques along the way, without which you might not have been able to get the human genome to, to come up. You are absolutely right. When we started thinking about the genome, Every base sequenced by the methods that we were using at the time was costing about $100. Mm. So if you multiply that by $3 billion, you know, suddenly mm. you have real money, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and by the time we started sequencing humans for real, it was about $0.10 cents a base. Wow. And now it's, you know, an infinitesimal percentage of a penny. So, yes, what was happening as we tried these little organisms, um, we got them sequenced, we learned how to do it, we got better. 
um, without that, we wouldn't have, we would never have been able to sequence the human genome. And that was interesting to me that you not only had to figure out how to do it, you had to figure out how to keep Congress interested in it. Yeah. And in fact, the whole country. And I remember those reports coming out. They've got the genome of this organism. Yeah. They got the genome of that. Yeah. And it was exciting. You know, I would say the other advantage of the strategy of starting with these smaller organisms is that we built support within the entire scientific community because everybody worked on some some of these organisms, one, one mm -hmm. or more of these organisms, and we're getting the benefit of having their sequence out there free for everybody who has a computer link. And, and so the, the resistance that you talked about earlier in the scientific community completely evaporated as everybody could see that there was, there was uh, information being generated that was going to make my own research better. Speaking of your research or anybody else's, what do you think for the average person who may not be able to make the connection, like me, uh, can't make it as readily as you can, between the ability to to get the human genome, the whole thing, and what it'll lead to? What kind of breakthroughs can we expect from that? Well, I think there already have been breakthroughs. Um, there are something in the order of 1,500 genetic diseases from the most common, like cystic fibrosis being one of the more common ones, to extremely rare diseases that might only affect, you know, a handful of families in the United States. We understand the genetic basis of all of those genetic diseases, those diseases mm. that are caused by variants in a single gene. So that has opened up research into how to develop uh, therapies. I think for me, one of the most extraordinary and exciting things that is going to happen, I think, in the next year is we are going to have a gene therapy for sickle cell anemia. I mean, sickle cell anemia has resisted all efforts to really treat it or prevent it. And it's a terrible and painful disease that disproportionately affects African-Americans in this country. Mm. And be because of all the knowledge we gained with the Human Genome Project, we are this close to having an approved gene therapy that is going to cure this terrible genetic disease. The gene therapy that I first heard about, I think the reason I heard about it was because it was unsuccessful. I think it resulted in the death of the patient 20 or 25 years ago. It did. A young man named Jesse Gelsinger at the University of Pennsylvania, who was prematurely, and I think underline that word, prematurely given a, uh, a vector, what we call a virus vector that was intended mm. to deliver gene therapy to patients but it was given to him prematurely. He should never have been in the clinical trial to begin with, and he tragically, tragically died. And frankly, this set the field back 10 to 15 years. Mm. I think the field learned a lot from that unmitigated disaster, mm. and uh, we now are much more able to understand how we're going to deliver uh, genes to patients um, in the future. Um, it's still a nascent field, 
And But the potential now is just, it's the first time since I first heard gene therapy talked about in the early 1980s that I feel optimistic about the field. You know, when we talk about government funding of science, I think of uh, Vannevar Bush. Yeah. This is around, it's around 75 years since he was so influential in the Roosevelt administration. Mm-hmm. I wonder if the reason that his his star has dimmed a little bit in the public consciousness is because nobody can pronounce his first name. <laughs> And in fact, there's so many different pronunciations. I'm not sure which I, is the right one. <laughs> you know, I, I looked I looked looked up on the web an interview he gave in, in shaky black and white a long time ago with Edward R. Murrow, I think. And uh, he said, "No, nobody knows how to pronounce my name." <laughs> he said, "I've heard it once in an introduction at a dinner. It was it, it was spoken wrong three times in the same sentence." <laughs> I think he hinted that it was Vannevar Bush, something Vannevar. close to that. But, but there are so many syllables you can land on. I don't know anybody else with that name. No, I don't. But regardless of his name, he really got the government thinking in a big way yeah. about funding basic research and all science. He's one of my heroes. Um, and when I need inspiration, I go back and read uh, Science, the Endless Frontier. And I've, I've probably read it a dozen times because I think it is such a prescient and inspirational document. And it did set up the blueprint for the extraordinary success of American science in the second half of the 20th century and into this century, too, if we're not making so many <laughs> foolish mistakes that we're going to lose our our uh, leadership. If you were asked, and I'm going to ask you, <laughs> What what you how you would summarize the most striking and important thing about the Bush essay that changed things around? What what would you say it is? Well, I think it's two or three things. One is he recognized that science to be successful has to be an ecosystem. And the and and there have to be different roles for different parts of the ecosystem. He that's number one. Number two, he thought that the best place to fund basic science was in universities and to link it to the training of graduate students. Mm. And obviously, as a, you know, a university professor my whole life, um, I was a huge beneficiary of that recommendation. What I think many people forget is that at the time, the majority of the science work funded by the government was being done in national laboratories, not in universities. And so the idea to link fundamental research to the training of future scientists, I think was his most brilliant idea. And then the final thing is he was the strong proponent that if you are not doing basic research, then you are basically destroying your seed corn. That that all of the advances that that um, could could come from great science will will disappear if people aren't asking curiosity driven questions, where the commercial benefit 
is either completely mysterious mm. or so far down the line that, um, you know, that a short-term thinking could force you to say, well, why do that? That's not going to happen for 20 years. He was the most articulate argument for the importance of continuing to fund basic science. And, and what he said in 1940, whatever it was, is still true today. And we forget it at our peril. You're so involved in the big questions. You're such a leading figure. You were named once one of the 50 most influential women scientists. I'm curious about your own experience as a woman scientist who's been so instrumental in advancing science in our country. I saw a video once where you were talking to students. And you said, if somebody tells you you don't belong, put blinders on and ignore it. Did you have to do that much in your early career? I think I did it, and I think I wasn't even conscious that I was doing it. It was only in retrospect that I understood that that's what I was doing, which is why I now give the advice. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, I think I just did this. Yeah, hands to your eyes like a blinders. Yeah. It's just seeing what you're focused on, knowing you can do the work yeah. and doing it. Yeah. What were some of the early roadblocks you faced? And do you think that there's been progress since then? Well, I'll start with the second question. There's no question that there has been progress. Um, that's different than saying that, you know, we can all declare victory and go home. But I think compared to the circumstances when I was beginning my career as a graduate student, for example, there's been enormous progress. I, I think that the, the barriers that I encountered that needed the blinders were often not institutional or even, you know, major impediments, but what I would call slings and arrows. Mm. You know, the, the, the person who says, well, I don't think you should really think about doing that because that takes a lot of creativity or that takes a lot of intelligence or, you know, and what it was code for it doesn't take a woman. Mm. And I had lots of instances. Uh, uh, one of my favorite was a high school guidance counselor. I, you know, I. I was a really strong math science student, career advising me that I not only would I make a good secretary, I'd make a good executive secretary. <laughs> <laughs> and when I went home and told my father, you know, this was high school, I was thinking about my future. My father had a fit and stormed into the school and demanded uh -huh. an explanation for how someone who had straight A's in science, in, you know, math, physics, and chemistry yeah. could be told that, that uh, I should aim to be a really good executive secretary. Well, th th thank goodness that you had him as your champion. But I can, I'm telling you, I know, I know how much this means to you because in our whole conversation, this is the first time you're pounding the table while you talk. <laughs> Oh, dear, and that's and, probably bad for the microphone. <laughs> yeah, but I hope we leave them in because 
It really punctuates your feelings. <laughs> this has been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And I wish you all the best as you move the needle forward in, in, in the rest of your work. Well, and I just am so happy to have this opportunity to thank you for what you are doing for science and science, the public understanding of science. I'm not sure where you you know, came up with this as a as a mission for yourself, but I am so grateful that you did. Maybe you would tell me how you decided. Thank you. I, I'm just curious, the same way you're curious, only I, my working life put me in a different direction, so I'm not curious at the bench. I'm curious face-to-face with you and other scientists, and I get them to explain to me what they do. And it's thrilling to me. I, I want it to be thrilling for everybody else. Wow. Because it's, it's, like, it's like, you know what I feel like? If they said, tomorrow we're going to turn off all the music and poetry and dance, there's not going to be any more of that stuff. We'd be missing a huge chunk of delight and elevation of the spirit. But that's the way we live with regard to science too much of the time. Yeah. The, the regular people among us, not the ones who devote their lives to it. Thanks so much. Take care, Ellen. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Codley Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in technology and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Shirley Tillman is President Emerita and Professor of Molecular Biology and Public Affairs at Princeton University. She also continues her work as co-chair of New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy's Restart and Recovery Commission. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Freeman Verbowski. His 18 years as president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, has transformed a sleepy commuter school into a launching pad for hundreds of black scientists and doctors. Science is not about a few privileged people. It is about all of us. That is the message. Can we bring people of different races, ethnic and religious backgrounds together and teach them how to study together, to work together, to understand each other's 
strengths and challenges and predicaments in such a way that as the students leave, they are prepared to lead in a, an increasingly diverse society. Freeman Hrabowski, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>